0: Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? Is anybody here last night to see uh, Rick Rhodes' debut? Yeah? If you weren't, last night a house group celebration happens once a month. If you know about the young adult house groups at this church, there's five of them. Each of them probably have anywhere from 30 to 40 people attending them. Once a month, we all meet up in one place, because we all started off as one, but the one we had in Coleraine grew too big, and so we had to start a second, and then those two each grew too big, so then we had four, and now we have five, um, and we all come, so we have separated, but we all come back together once a month, and uh, last night Rick Rhodes um, just gave an amazing uh, message, and his testimony was powerful, man, those of you that uh, were here, you can agree with that, So that's going to be on the podcast. I encourage you to listen to that, but we're going to dive right into it today, okay? So, open up your Bibles to John 1. We're in this series called, Who is Jesus? This is an important question, as Van pointed out last week, because Jesus is everything we need to know about God and everything we need to know about ourselves, okay? And so that's why on Sundays, we are answering the question, who is Jesus? Three days later on Wednesday, we're doing the identity formed thing where we are taking those truths that we found out about Jesus and seeing how they apply to us. We see who we really are when we look at Jesus, And um, Jesus is also everything we need to know about God, meaning that if you want to know what God is really like, you look at Jesus. You look first and foremost at Jesus, and you let nothing else contradict what you see in Jesus. Van gave a really awesome metaphor last week in that, imagine this, I'm not married, but say I was. And me and my wife decide one evening to go and do separate things with friends. And so I go to one place, she goes to another. We're not necessarily telling each other exactly where we're going. We're not hiding it, but we're just, it's just not on our minds. And so I end up at one restaurant, and then across the street, she happens to end up at that one. And I see her there, but she doesn't see me. And then I look across the street, and what do you know? She's with another guy. Okay, And her and this other guy walk out of the restaurant. I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. I don't know who that person is. And then they kiss and go their separate ways. And I'm left there trying to make sense of it, right? You know, this is kind of what it's like when, at least for me, I read some stuff maybe in the Old Testament, right? Because I'm kind of like, man, I, uh, Jesus is amazing. He's always in a good mood. He loves us. He never does anything to harm us, but everything to build us up. And then I might read something in the Old Testament and be like, man, God seems like he's not really in a good mood right there, (laughs) right? (laughs) And Jesus is everything I need to know about God, but like, I know that the Bible is inerrant. So what is that all about? You know, it's kind of a similar experience. Or it could be something like, you know, I know God's amazing. And then this horrible thing happens to me, this tragedy. And I'm like, man, seems like God could have stopped that, but he didn't. And that might cause me to change my view about God. It might, going back to the metaphor, seeing my, my wife across the street, it might cause me to start to think that she actually isn't faithful to me, that she doesn't love me. And everything that, you know, however long we've been married, everything that we've built up relationally, all that equity is just gone because of that one event, So we can choose to take that perspective, or we can choose to take a different one, where it's like, you know what? I'm experiencing something right now that I cannot explain. I'm reading something right now that I cannot explain, but I know who Jesus is, and I know that he's good, and I know that he's everything I need to know about God, so I must not understand that thing. I must not understand that verse that I read. You know, Van gave some examples. Maybe it was her cousin long-lost cousin she hasn't seen in a while. She happened to run into him in the restaurant. And in their family, they kiss on the lips. (laughs) Not for me. I don't know if I want to do that with my cousins, but who knows? You know? Um, Or maybe it was an unwanted advance, and she was just as embarrassed you know, and just as mad about it as I was, but she just wanted to get away from the situation as quickly as possible. You know, we choose to say, Who I know Jesus to be is not going to be taken away from me, is not going to be altered by anything I experience or even anything that I read in the Old Testament. I trust in who Jesus has revealed himself to be because in Hebrews 1, the author writes that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God, that everything about Jesus, everything about God was revealed in Jesus. Jesus. So he's everything we need to know about God. He's everything we need to know about ourselves. And so I actually want to reference that verse that I promised you we're going to get into five minutes ago and read it. So turn with me to uh, John 1.17. This is a verse that Van brought up last week, and it's going to frame everything else we talk about. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, the thing about truth is that it's black and white. And so there are parts of God, there are parts of Jesus, there are things that are black and white in our Christian experience. Grace, on the other hand, oftentimes is gray. You know, grace means favor, And the favor that God puts on my life might be different from the favor he puts on yours, from the favor he puts on this person, from the favor he puts on that person. One person might have the favor to teach. One person might have the favor to do administrative work. One person might have the favor to listen really well. And if any wives in here want their husbands to have that favor, let's just pray for it right now, and you'll (laughs) receive it. But the point is, grace is not black and white. It's different per person. It's, it achieves the same thing, but it gets there through different routes. And so this kind of brings up the same topic that I don't know how many of you heard me three weeks ago, but it brings up the same topic I was talking about then, in that there is oftentimes this tension between grace and truth, that um, there can be things where some might want to view it as black and white, Whereas others might want to view a certain thing as grey. And I really believe that misunderstanding what should be black and white and what should be grey is caused the major problems in the church today. I'll give you an example. If there is something that is gray, that's actually gray, yet I am looking at it in a black and white way, that causes division in the body. I'm like, this is right. If you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Separate. On the other hand, when we look at things that are black and white as though they were gray, this is where corruption comes into the church. Because this is actually true. We should never do this, or we should always do this. Here we're saying, ah, oh, it's okay not to sometimes. So, corruption and division, wouldn't y'all agree with me? Two biggest problems probably in the church today comes from when we look at the things that are gray as though they were black and white, and we look at the things that are black and white as though they were gray. And uh, so this, this message is gonna kind of be like part two to the one that I shared three weeks ago. I got to share a lot of my heart then, but I didn't necessarily get to share everything that I wanted to. And so it's gonna be about who is Jesus. It's that Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth. If we want to know what grace looks like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know what truth looks like, we look at Jesus. And let's talk about the tension that kind of happens when you have grace and truth in a family like we are here and talk about how to navigate that. So, to do some review, turn with me to Titus 2. This is the verse that I started off with three weeks ago. Verses 11 through 14, starting in verse 11. Here we go. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory Of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. That first phrase, for the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions. We are so lucky that it's the grace of God that trains us to do that. In fact, the message of the gospel is this. If I ever have a vision for how I want to be living, and then I look at my own lifestyle, and I see that it is not matching up with that, if I'm like, I want to live in a godly way, I want to love every person I come into contact with, I want to be honest, and I look at my lifestyle, and it's not, they don't align, the answer is never trying harder in the kingdom more effort is never the answer because we've been given a new identity jesus didn't die to give us a little more strength to conquer those sin struggles so that we have like just enough strength to conquer a sin struggle and you know whenever it comes it's like this battle but we barely prevail what he came to do was take away that Whole sin nature that we had in the first place and give us a new identity where we are actually capable of living like Jesus did, and the only time we don't is when we believe lies about ourselves or we believe lies about God. And so, the way to freedom, if you remember, uh, Bob Hazlett talked about this, is that it starts in thoughts. I stop thinking sinful and negative thoughts and I start thinking godly ones. Then that goes to speech. The more I think it, the more that I will say it. Saying it goes to behavior. The more that I say it, the more that I'll do it. And behavior goes to being. The more that I do it, the more I'll become it. And so trying harder is never the answer. It's taking those thoughts captive, proclaiming out what the real truth is, seeing it manifest in my life, and then becoming it. So it's the grace of God that trains us to live godly lives, but, like I brought up before, there can be tension between those two things, you know? There can be, uh, like, when is it, okay, is it okay to do X, Y, and Z, or is it not okay for Christians to do X, Y, and Z? Well, what I will say is that there are a lot of things that are black and white for us. Like, anything in this book, anything that we read in here that says, this is sin, those are black and white. There is never any grace for us to lie or be jealous or to get drunk. You know, there's grace when we do that. We get forgiven. We've been forgiven, but we never have like the freedom in a certain context to do that. But there are some things that are actually gray and their intention. Some that we brought up three weeks ago, alcohol and tobacco is one of these, you know, like, is it okay to drink one beer or is it not? The Bible never says you can't drink any alcohol. It simply says don't get drunk. And so um, what's like the amount? You you might have somebody who has an alcohol allergy, and if they have like half a beer, they're like wasted. You know, they probably shouldn't drink half a beer. Then you might have someone who has like German DNA or something. (laughs) And they can have like four or five, who knows how many drinks and just be, normal, you know? So, what's the right answer? Like, is it okay for Christians to drink or not? Another one would be uh, boundaries for non-married couples, you know? So there might be some non-married couples who, if they are alone together, in private, they will more likely than not fall into sexual immorality. Does that mean that every single Christian couple has to apply a rule to themselves that they can never spend time alone in private simply because another couple struggles with it? Some people would say that. Some people would try to make it black and white, but I think it's easy to see that it's actually gray. Other ones you brought up, social media, um, movies and TV shows. All these, I believe, are items in tension. They are gray. There's nothing in the pages that say don't do this or do that, but they can lead into sin or not. So Jesus actually talks about how to navigate that tension. Turn with me to Mark 7. You know, Jesus, like I said, he embodies grace and truth. He embodies truth in that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, He also embodies grace in what he's about to say in Mark 7. So this is Mark 7. We're starting in verse 14. He is talking to a crowd in response to something the religious leaders had just said to his disciples. So here we go. If you want more context behind that, you can uh, listen to the podcast from three weeks ago. But just for the sake of time, we're going to fly through it. So verse 14. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. Now in verse 20. And he said, It is what comes out of a person that defiles, for it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornification, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the way to tell whether you have the freedom to do something that is intention or to consume a gray thing is by seeing what comes out of you as a result of you consuming it. It's not about what comes in he says. He says there's nothing that by coming in can defile. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. So what that means for us is that we have to be ruthless in evaluating what how what we are consuming is affecting us, you know? If I every time I have a couple beers, I get more lustful and I see more lustful thoughts coming to my mind, then I probably should not drink a couple beers because what I am consuming out of me is coming lust. Or uh, social media is a good example for this. Some people just use Facebook and Instagram and other social media, Twitter, whatever, and it's just something they do. It doesn't really negatively affect them. Others, they seek value and validation through social media. And every time they post a status, every time they post a picture, they're just waiting for people to comment on it and like it and affirm them because that gives them a sense of value. Well, that person is idolizing people's opinion over God. They're getting value from others over God and social media is what's spurring that on. So They probably shouldn't use social media. But that doesn't mean that no one should use social media who claims to follow Jesus. And what it means that there's nothing on the outside that can defile us, but it's what comes out of us that defiles, is that one list of rules that gets applied to everyone is not the way to go. It will not work, because these things are gray, they are not black and white. And when we try to make gray things black and white, that's where legalism usually enters into the picture. So, with all that said, where I kind of left you three weeks ago was what happens when we bring a bunch of people together who have varying levels of freedom? Like That's where it gets messy, and that's where it gets complicated. And so let's, uh, we're going to spend the rest of the time in Romans 14 and kind of go through everything in there. So turn to Romans 14, and we will get going. There was a problem in the Roman church that Paul is addressing in Romans 14. Jesus, about 30 years prior, had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on the twelve, and the twelve had begun advancing the gospel all throughout the world. Um, One guy named Saul encountered Jesus supernaturally, and whereas before he was radical about killing Christians, now he's radical about spreading the gospel to everywhere. And he actually takes the gospel further than any of the 12 ever did. And through Paul, the Apostle Paul's efforts, the gospel gets to Rome. Now in Rome, they were both Gentile and Jewish people that were getting born again and joining the Christian church. And so that caused some problems because... The uh, Gentiles, they had a little bit of religious baggage. They had some polytheism and some idol worship to root out. The Jews, on the other hand, had like thousands of years of baggage, of being told like, hey, if you want to be holy in God's sight, you have to do these 613 things. And if you don't do them, then you're defiled. And uh, so these two are coming together, and... There are problems arising. And what Paul is doing here is addressing those problems. So let's read verses 1 through 4. Romans 14, verse 1. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So Paul refers to a group of people who are weak in faith. Those people, as we read, in this chapter are people who felt like eating meat was defiling themselves before God. We're not sure if it's like all meat or if it was just the meat that was forbidden in the Jewish law. could have been meat that had been sacrificed to idols. We're not exactly sure from the context, but it had to do with meat. And the people that were eating it were being viewed as sinning. And the people that were coming into this community were believing that if I eat meat, then I am sinning before God. And uh, of course we know from Jesus there's nothing outside a person that that by going in can defile that that was an error. Also, Paul later on says all things are clean in this chapter. So those who are weak in faith, sometimes they're called the weaker brother or sister. We learn that these are people who... Believe something to be sinful that is not sinful. Okay? They're people who have a black and white view about some practice, particularly eating meat, that if anyone eats meat, they are sinning. And that wasn't true. So that's who Paul describes as the person who is weak in faith. Then in verse 3, Paul kind of gives an ideal to this church on. How he wants them to live with each other and operate and behave. And so, what he says is that if any of you have a personal conviction before God that you're not to eat meat, then don't. And those people should not be hated for that. On the same token, those who don't have that conviction, they shouldn't judge the people. Sorry, those that don't have that conviction, they shouldn't hate the people that do, and those that do shouldn't judge the people that don't. You know, it's easy, the judgment part is easy to understand, but we might be thinking, like, why would I ever hate someone for having a conviction that I don't have? Well, it's actually pretty common. You know, for example, any of you know uh, Maria Carlson? <laughs> okay. You guys love her, I guess. Um, She's awesome. So let me tell you about the first time that I met Maria. Um, We had two house groups at the time, and me and Amanda, or Amanda and I were leading the one in Forest Park. And Maria came, I think it might have been her first time at Forest Park, and she happened to be in my Bible study group, about six of us. And so before we actually study whatever passage house group is studying at Bible study, we get to know each other a little bit better. So everyone kind of shares stuff about themselves. It gets to Maria's turn. She shares a bunch of amazing things about her because she's amazing. And then she ends with, oh yeah, and also I feel like God three years ago told me that I shouldn't watch any television and so I haven't watched any television in three years. And I was like, wow. <laughs> um, and here's what can oftentimes happen when we hear something like that. I could have been tempted to think, like, man, she uh, doesn't watch any TV. I, like, probably watch at least a half hour a day. Maybe on my days off, sometimes I watch three or four hours. You know, I just can't turn the office off sometimes. It's just so good. And uh, then I might be thinking, like, well, shoot, am I, like, sinning because of this? Am I, like, doing something wrong? Do I need to change what I'm doing? and I can start to get insecure about myself because of something that she does. I'm comparing myself to her, and because of that, I'm feeling insecurity. And usually, I I can respond to that in one of two ways. First, I can feel condemnation and ashamed every time I watch TV because I'm second-guessing as to whether it's something okay for me to do or not. And I'm just living in this constant battle of shame. Secondly, and kind of even worse, if I feel that insecurity, I can start to attack her belief and try to convince her why what she's doing is stupid, because if she stops doing it, then I'll feel okay about myself. And so what Paul is trying to say here is none of that, okay? If someone has that personal conviction, they have to obey God, because God has called them to this. Don't hate them, though. Bless Cherish, honor that personal conviction they have, but don't compare yourself to them. You look to me for what you can and can't do. (laughs) In the same time, those who have the conviction don't judge other people that don't have them. And so the ideal is that these personal convictions are deeply respected and never projected universally. Also, it kind of goes without saying, the ideal that Paul has for this church is that all would become strong in faith. Paul doesn't want anybody in the Roman church to be in ignorance or to believe that something that isn't sinful actually is sinful. Paul wants everyone to become strong in faith. It wouldn't make sense for him to want people to stay in errored thinking. So that's one through four. Let's take a look now at verses five and six, plugging along. Are you guys with me still? Okay. I know this is kind of dense. I think it's important. Verse 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So Paul brings up days here. He's uh, most assuredly talking about the Sabbath day, that uh, some of these believers thought that, you know, on Saturdays I have to do all this stuff or else I'm sinning against God. He also could be talking about certain festivals and other holy days that the uh, Jewish faith practiced. Um, And so what he's doing here is he's saying not only is um, the issue of eating meat gray, but also... These holy days are gray, too. And so what Paul kind of is doing in bringing that other one up is he is making a statement about any gray item, that the principles that I am putting forth in this chapter, that they apply to anything that is gray, to anything that is intention. So not just eating meat, not just observing holy days, but also other cleanliness laws. And maybe for us, we could think about um, drinking, And we could think about social media, television, and movies. His, the ideal for how we're to operate is that those who have the personal conviction should live it out, not be hated for it, and not judge those that don't have it. And so what we really see is that there's a difference between being weak in faith and between having a personal conviction from God. The difference is this. Those who have a personal conviction, those who feel like God has said, like Maria, don't watch television. They don't take that word from God and then try to apply it to everybody around them. Those who are weak in faith, however, they view something as sinful that isn't, and then they try to project it onto everyone around them. They try to use black and white thinking for something that's gray. That's what's causing the problem. So there's a difference here. The ideal is that there will be no one weak in faith, but those who have a personal conviction will be allowed to live it out in peace. Okay. So that's all good, but we don't live in an ideal world, right? So um, let's get to the heart of the issues here and how Paul talks about how do we actually reconcile those conflicts? How do we bring those who are coming into our community who are weak in faith into a place of being strong in faith? So... We're going to skip 7 through 12 because it's not vital for understanding the passage. Read it on your own if you want. But go to verse 13. Here we go. Verses 13 through 17. 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit." Okay, so one thing to point out before we unpack that is the person who is weak in faith, this is not somebody who, like, before they got born again, had, like, an addiction to eating meat, and that, you know, if one smell of, like, a sirloin entered their nostrils, they'd, like, go on a meat binge for, like, the next month, eating pounds and pounds and pounds of meat until, you know, they passed out. That's, you know, um, that's not what he's talking about here. And so I know a lot of people will apply this passage to people that have struggled with alcoholism and they'll say something like, you know, if somebody has struggled with alcoholism, and they come into the church, then make sure you don't ever drink in front of them because you could cause them to stumble. And, uh, so the, uh, personally, I would use, I would alter my behavior around someone like that, you know? If I was meeting with someone for lunch who had recently uh, struggled with alcoholism, I probably wouldn't order a beer. I probably wouldn't invite them to come to an event that House Group or Vineyard Northwest or some of my friends were doing, where some people might be drinking beer or drinking wine, you know? I would uh, probably use a lot of discretion there. Um, But the context of this verse isn't talking about someone who has struggled with one of the items of attention. The context is talking about someone who believes in their mind that something is sinful that isn't. And so, really, my personal opinion is that what better people to show those who have struggled with alcoholism what responsible drinking looks like than the body of Christ? You know? Like, if. If they don't see responsible drinking from us, they're not going to see it from the world. And these people that have struggled with alcoholism, it's not like we can stop them from ever being around alcohol ever again. They're going to go to restaurants. They may go to bars. They're going to be around alcohol again. And uh, in those settings, they can just drink and drink and drink, and no one's going to say anything, at least if they're with the body of Christ. And we we know someone is struggling with that and we see them partaking when they've said that they feel like God is telling them not to, we can call them out and be like, hey, stop it. You said that you're not doing that. Don't do it. Um, So that's how I would approach that issue. But the issue here in Romans 14 is different. It's not about someone who had a meat addiction. It's about someone who believes that eating meat is sinful and how they are to interact with the rest of the body. And so what Paul says in... Uh, verses 14 and 15 is that when considering these people, the way of love is never to hate, shame, insult, or ignore the weak in faith because of their error in thinking. And that actually, sometimes we have to restrict our own freedom in order to release freedom to them. Sometimes we have to restrict our own freedom. And if we just take a black and white approach and we say, nope, you're wrong. This is not sinful, so I'm not only going to do it in front of you. I'm going to make you do it. If we take that black and white approach, then we're going to push these people away. I'll give you an example. Um, a couple of years ago, this certain person came into House Group, and this person was a cessationist. If you're not familiar with that term, a cessationist is somebody who believes that all the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. And are no longer happening. So healing doesn't happen anymore. Prophecy doesn't happen anymore. Word of knowledge, tongues, none of that stuff happens anymore. And uh, so I was thinking to myself, like, man, not only do we believe in all this stuff, but we practice it every single Thursday and Friday. So, I, but hey, you know, that's fine. She can come. Let her come to house group. And so she came, and uh, she seemed to enjoy it, met some people, was nice and pleasant, and she decided to come back the next week. And then she came back like 10, 12 more weeks in a row. And then it came to a time, you know, after a certain amount of weeks of someone attending, we as leaders ask them to get more involved with House Group. And so the time came like, okay, uh, she's come X amount of times, so it's time for us to ask her to join the, you know, preliminary leadership team. And I had to make a decision. Um, Am I going to be black and white or am I going to be gray? And I said, you know what? I'm going to let her join. Um, I don't know how far she's going to go, but I'm going to let her join. And so she joined the leadership team. And, you know, this was even crazier because in our leadership meetings before house group, this is where we really get weird. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like uh, we kind of keep it mild and we'll uh, always talk about things in everyday English. Um, during house group, but in the leaders' meeting, there's like no reservations, it's whatever happens, happens, it's just we all go for it. And so, she's not necessarily like actively engaging, but she's still coming every single week. I think that's cool. Then, a couple months later, this really crazy thing happened at house group. Um, any of you guys know Kevin Barth? Yeah. Kevin Barth is a leader at the Northside House Group. This is when I was still at Northside. And during our ministry time, um, had about 20 people in a room. We all asked God to speak to us and tell us something about someone in the room. And so people are saying, you know, a lot of general things, like God wants to give peace to somebody. God wants to give love to somebody. Comes to Kevin and he says, I feel like God showed me that someone has a uh, problem with a veneer in their mouth. A veneer, like a false tooth. Um, and I was like, great. Anybody here have a veneer problem? <laughs> Fully expecting it to just be nothing, you know? And uh, this one guy who had been saved the day before, he'd been on drugs, got saved, first time at house group, called him Shaggy. That might have been his real name. He, uh, <laughs> he raises his hand and he says... Yeah, that's me. I have a uh, loose veneer that's in a lot of pain, and I'm really scared it's going to fall out. And so I was like, well, I've never encountered this situation before, but let's pray for it. And so I bring Kevin over. i like, Kevin, I don't really know how to pray, but just pray that God would intervene. So Kevin prays for him. Um, and uh, before he prayed, we had him, like, touch it and kind of move it around a little bit. And so he would move it a little bit, and it would hurt, and it felt loose, um, then we prayed, and I kid you not, not only did all the pain in the tooth go away, but it secured in his mouth, and he couldn't move it anymore. It was wild. <laughs> and so this certain cessationist witnessed that, and so I went up to her afterwards. I was like, "Hey, uh, what do you think about that?" <laughs> you know, hadn't really pressed her very hard or anything, and she, I was like, "How do you think that?" Uh, Kevin knew about that, and she said, well, you know, I believe that God puts things on our hearts for people, but it's not necessarily prophecy. And I was like, you know what? Great. Fine. If you functionally are believing in and practicing prophetic gifting, but you don't want to call it prophecy, that's cool with me, you know? (laughs) Um, And I was like, well, like, what about like the healing? Like, what do you think about that? And she was like, well, you know, I, I think that God can still heal people. I just don't think that we can do it the same way that the 12 did it. And I was like, you know, personally, I do, I do believe that we can. But I didn't say that. I was like, that's close enough. You know, that's fine. Like, that's okay with me. And so I don't think she ever would have said those things early on. But she was allowed to go through a progression where she went from this place of being weak in faith believing something was wrong that wasn't. In fact, she would have said early on that um, anyone who practices the spiritual gifts are deluded, and if they actually see results, it's demonic, is what she would have originally said. That's that's kind of the cessationist thesis. Um, So she kind of went from that place and sloped up to, oh yeah, God can put stuff on our hearts for people. God can heal people. But let me ask you all a question. If, right when she first came to house group, I had said, hey, I'm glad you're here, but we got to get some things straight. We believe all the gifts are still alive, and if you don't, you're wrong, and we want you to know that. If I'd been black and white right away, I've done that before. Not that exact thing, but I've done things like that and pushed people away. She would have probably been in and out. Or maybe when she joined the leadership team. That seems like the place where we'd be like, hey, if you don't believe this, you can't be involved here. You know, you're done. But I didn't do that either. And what resulted was fruit in her life. And that just shows that there are things that we have to be black and white on for sure, but there are also things that really are gray. We can't be black and white about them. So let's wrap this up. Let's read verses twenty through twenty three now. Finish the chapter out. <clears throat> Verse twenty. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, And whatever is not from faith is sin. So kind of the crux of this passage is verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So most of you probably know that the Bible was not written in English, but actually written in Greek and Hebrew. And so while the Bible is inerrant in its original language, translations, like English translations, can actually have errors in them. And uh, I was talking to Van about this passage, and he was explaining to me that this passage makes the verb in it seem passive when really it's an active verb. So let me give you an example. Um, What this makes... What verse 21 sounds like is if I passively am eating meat and somebody who I know who thinks eating meat is sinful sees me eating meat, then I'm causing them to stumble, you know? Or like if I'm eating meat in my home in Rome and I have a window open and someone who doesn't eat meat has got a pair of binoculars and they're like looking into my window (laughs) and like, ah, he's eating meat, sinner, you know? and they see that I'm eating meat, then I'm uh, causing them to stumble, so i got to make sure my windows are closed if I'm going to eat any meat, you know, lest I cause a brother to stumble. That's kind of a passive understanding of that verb. How this actually reads in the Greek is that it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to stumble your brother in any way. So to stumble your brother is not this passive thing. It's like my brother or sister is walking by, and I stick my foot out, and they trip, okay? And so um, what that would more so look like is the leaders of the Roman church seeing these people that are coming in who are weak in faith, who won't eat meat, and saying, hey, we're going to sit around a table right now in our small group. We're going to give you a plate of choice-cut filet mignon, and... You have to eat it because it is right to eat, and we're going to break you of your religious mentality right now. Eat the meat, you know? Um, that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. And we know that from verse 23, because Paul says this He who doubts is still condemned if he eats. So he's talking to the leaders here. He's saying, and yet he, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. If you force that person to eat meat, yet in their heart they believe that meat is sinful, then you are causing them to sin against their own conscience. Don't do that. That's so basically what Paul is saying. If, you know, even though there is nothing wrong at all with consuming meat, if someone believes that there is, and you force them to eat meat without allowing them to go through that progression of seeing that, it's not, that it is okay to eat meat. If you force them to do it, then you are causing them to sin, is what he's saying. <clears throat> so what that means for us then is that if you get anything else from going through Romans 14, it should be this. We have to be black and white about the right things, and we have to be gray about the right things. And you know what? We have so many amazing guidelines in this book, but we have a word and a spirit, right? And a lot of times, how we apply the truth that's in here, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us. You know what? In some situations, Maybe it would be better for me to tell someone, hey, look, I just need to be upfront with you. We practice the spiritual gifts, and um, we really believe in them. There might be a time where I would need to say that up front. There might be a time where I wouldn't. There might be a time where someone who's coming into our community, they're struggling with alcoholism. We need to have a couple of events where they're dry so we can bless these people, or maybe there's a whole lot of people that come in. Other times, we gotta show them what responsible drinking looks like. You know, Van tells a story. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back out. I'll end with this. Van tells a story often about a uh, guy that was interviewing to work here who, this is like many, many years ago before I was here, who had come from a really oppressive legalistic church that said, any drinking is sinful. And this, they were getting lunch together and Van felt like the spirit told him, hey, order a beer in front of him. And see what happens. And so Van did that. The other guy ordered first and got like a Coke. And then Van raised his hand and he told him, "Yeah, I'll have this on draft." And then the waitress started walking away. The other guy's like, "Hey, wait, 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 wait a minute! I'm going to get a beer too. You know, I just didn't know if you wanted one." <laughs> um, and so the point is that um, in that case, Van felt like using his freedom was the best thing for. Healing for that interaction, and it was because it healed that guy of a lot of religious oppressive legalistic um, mentality. Other times, it might be better to say, "No, I'm just going to get a coke." But we have to rely on the spirit to navigate those gray things. Okay, so that's all I have. Thank you guys for listening. Hey, Amen. Come back up.